My name is Phil Pearson, I'm ministry director here at St. Pete's, and it's a joy to be with you, and happy Mother's Day to those that are mothers, and yeah. Uh, let me start off by praying, and we'll go from there. Father God, um, we give thanks to be a church in downtown uh, and to bring the gospel here each week. Pray that we have hearts to hear and ears to hear, Lord, to receive, um, that we are not just hearers of the word but doers also, that we live this out, that we experience your goodness today and live it out in all the places we go. In your name, amen. I want to start with a story. I was uh, about 13 years old when I bought my first pair, my only pair of Hulk boxing gloves. Does anyone remember Hulk, like Incredible Hulk gloves? They're essentially boxing gloves, but shaped like the Incredible Hulk's fist, and they have like a voice box in it, so when you punch something, they shout like Hulk smash. And so they would make noise as you would hit things. Um, but I, so I bought these when I was a kid at a garage sale and we used them often. But the, the most memorable moment of the Hulk smash gloves was I was about 15 or 16 and my three best friends, uh, Chris, Danny and Demi were over and we were in for a weekend of Call of Duty and wrestling and stuff like that. And Chris and Danny decided to fight with the Hulk boxing gloves. They each put on one glove and they began boxing, um, as 16-year-olds do. And they were getting a little heated for fun, but still a little. And I was like, guys, you need to stop. You need to stop. And then my best friend, Chris, wound up for this beautiful punch right into Danny's chest, knocked him off his feet and into the wall. And he sat in the wall with his feet dangling off the ground a little bit, like he went in the wall. And we all just stopped. Our hearts sunk and we stood there for a moment. Well, Danny hung there for a moment until we pulled him out. And I was like, my dad's going to kill me. Like he's, And the worst part was it's a Saturday morning. My dad is at work in his office just above us. And we just stood there for a moment in this guilt and shame. And then we began doing what teenagers do, which was figuring out what we could possibly do. So Chris good with his hands. He's now working to become an engineer. He was like, I can cut out the hole. We can go get to my house, get the drywall, implant it, do all this. And I was like, it's a Saturday morning. My dad's going to come down. And Danny was like, I'll just, I'll just go get a bunch of cash and give it to your dad. And then Demi, <laughs> maybe the smartest of us, looks over and he sees this fake plant in a pot and he just puts it in front. <laughs> and it fully blocked the hole. And I thought about that one for a second. I was like, that might work. And then finally, the guilt was too much. And I was like, no, we just have to go tell my dad. And so the four of us marched up the stairs, tails between our legs, knocked on the door. And my dad said, what did you do? <laughs> and I was like, well, it wasn't actually me this time. And you should just come see. So we take him down to the basement. And it's like a, a foot and a half wide hole deep into the drywall, and we come down, and, and I say, well, this is what happened, and I just move the plant out of the way. There it is. And he looked at it for a little bit, and Chris is like, I can fix it, and Danny's like, I'll pay for it. And my dad just put the plant back in front, and he said, we'll fix it later. It's okay. You're forgiven. And that plant stayed there for 12 years. <laughs> like, I moved away, and my parents waited for three years until they drywalled it. Like, they just wanted to make sure another one wouldn't happen. But I, I think about that feeling often of going up the stairs to tell my dad. But the relief of being forgiven 
And every time I would see that plant in front of the, in front of the hole, it was this, it was guilt and it was joy at being forgiven. And today we're, we're moving through a series on liturgy and we get to a really fun part. Welcome guests. We're talking about confession. Why do we come together and confess each week? And, and last week we talked about money and we just wanted to, you know, ramp it up, keep on going with our trend. Uh, but today we're going to talk about confession because every week here at St. Peter's and at churches across the world, we say something like this. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. We humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. And we say this week in and week out, and I think that over everything we do on a Sunday morning, this may be one of the most radical things we do. We give money, we sing songs, we say that we eat the body and blood of Christ, and yet on Sundays we gather and we say we're sorry. And really, past the age of 15, 16, I think we stop saying sorry a lot. Like if you work in a corporate environment, they'll tell you, don't apologize, never apologize, never assume guilt. And if you do apologize, say, I'm sorry, how, I'm sorry for how you feel. It's like a half-baked, like you don't really care, you're not really sorry, you're trying to remove that impact and guilt. But every week we come together and we repent, we confess, and that's uncomfortable. My assumption is in this room it is a wide um, swath of, of response to it. To some of us we may think, I have nothing to apologize for, why am I being invited to kneel and repent? To others, we may say, I have too much to apologize. This brief little lull in the service is, is not long enough. And others, we may think, I don't deserve forgiveness. So why would I even come and try to apologize? But in this moment in our service, we're invited into something incredible and sacred and challenging. And it's also filled with a lot of baggage. We may think that it's a time to come to wallow in our self-pity or beg for God to forgive us. So today, what I want to do is I want to explore what it means to confess our sins and receive forgiveness, and then at the end, answer a couple questions that I think may be common when it comes to confession. And in order to do this, I want to use Psalm 32, specifically verses 1 to 5 as our guide, because Psalm 32, it's a meditative psalm of confession. And David is looking back on his life and the many horrible things he did and confessing and receiving forgiveness for that. So join me one more time as I read Psalm 32, and I'm just going to read 1 to 5, though the rest of the psalm is beautiful, but I didn't want to have an hour and a half sermon today. So, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, in and in who there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave my sin. This is the word of the Lord. So in these short 
five verses, we see three movements going on. First, we see the surprising blessing of being forgiven. Then we see the pain of silence. And finally, we see the faithfulness of God. So the surprising blessing, the pain of silence, and the faithfulness of God. The psalmist begins with an incredible thesis, one that may, we may miss right away. He says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And that should be very surprising to us. Because take the very first psalm in the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but in whose delight is the law of the Lord, and who who meditates on it day and night. See, Psalm 1, I would say, makes sense to our modern sensibilities. The good person who does right is blessed. The good person who avoids doing bad things is the one who is blessed. They live a joyful life. They're rewarded. They're glad. They're happy. And Psalm 1 later goes on, The wicked are blown away like chaff. The wicked receive judgment. But Psalm 32 actually offers a counter thesis. Because it says this, Blessed is the person who failed, who screwed up, who made mistakes, the person who intentionally or unintentionally hurt someone else. Blessed is the liar, the cheater, the thief, the sinner, the mocker, the wicked, who is forgiven. Not who lived rightly who messed up and was forgiven. So Psalm 32, it should surprise us right from the beginning because it's saying the good life comes to the person who messed up and God forgave. Are you with me? Okay. Blessed is not merely for the do-gooder, it's for the forgiven as well. And this should be good news to most of us because my assumption is we are not always the do-gooder. We are somewhere in the middle. So the first question is this, why do we come and confess each week? And I'd say it's simple. We come and confess each week because we want to be blessed. In our confession that we say each week, we say, forgive us our sins that we may delight in your will. Essentially, it's this, forgive us that we may live the good life, the blessed life, the unburdened life. Or you could put it another way. You could say, the person whose sins are forgiven experiences salvation. And as I said a few weeks ago, salvation is not only going to heaven when you die. Salvation is being liberated and freed from enslavement to sin and death. And forgiveness frees us from from slavery to sin and death. So the blessing that David speaks of, of this forgiven person, is a blessing of salvation. And it's not an earned salvation. It's a given salvation from somebody else's forgiveness. So David gives this first picture of this blessed life, a person free from their sins by being forgiven. But he gives an opposite image after. He says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. To David, when we don't confess our sins, something happens to us physically, spiritually, emotionally. A sense of being crushed, of dried out in constant groaning. 
the psychiatrist and researcher, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. He writes about this phenomenon of how we keep stress and trauma and emotions bottled in our body and what it does to us. And he has two really powerful quotes in that book. He says, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. And the second thing he says is that the greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. So David and Bessel here, they are pointing to something major, living without confession, without the truth being revealed, destroys us from the inside. David puts it, when I kept silent, and this isn't the silence of introverts, but of a person who knows they did something and are trying to cover it up, who puts the plant in front of the hole in the wall. And I mean, if we're honest, we've probably all done something and then lied about it, and then you keep on doing the work of covering it up, and you have to like perfect this perfect story so there's no way that anyone can figure out you've lied, and you tell the story again and again to make sure, but then you lie awake at night like thinking about it, and the person's facial reaction, maybe they're getting closer to knowing the truth. You messed up, you made a mistake, but you don't want anyone to know. This is the plot of like, 50% of movies we see. Somebody messes up, and now they need to do everything to cover it up. And it destroys us. It tears us apart. It's living in constant anxiety. And I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. The very, thing we see, very first thing we see in Scripture, when Adam and Eve sin, when they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is shame. They feel naked. They feel exposed. They hide themselves. They don't want to be seen it tears them apart. And so David, what he's doing in this psalm, he offers this blessed life as one image and a life in tension and stress and anxiety from a lack of telling the truth. He's offering us, which one do you want to live? Because I used to be the latter. I used to be in this place of tension and anxiety. And so he tells us how to experience that blessed life in verse 5, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then that last sentence, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. In order to move forward, David does the one vital thing. He tells the truth. He moves the plant. He shines a light on what he did. Theologically, you could actually call confession an apocalypse because an apocalypse means a revealing. And so every time we have confession, we come to an apocalypse in our life, a moment where we're given the chance to reveal what we've done. And David here, he does something really beautiful. In the Hebrew, he uses three distinct Hebrew words for sin. And I'm not going to use the Hebrew words. I'm just going to use the English words that were given. Sin, iniquity, and transgressions. And these, these three cover the whole understanding of sin. So sin, uh, the first word that's used, it just means to fail. The simplest image is of an archer missing the target. We were made to reflect the image of God, and we don't. We miss the mark on what it means to love. We fail this each and every day in ways big and small, done and undone. We fail to live into who God made us to be. 
And so David acknowledges this. He admits it. He brings it up. I've messed up, and it's hurt people around me. I haven't lived the life of love I was made for. And then iniquity is a little different. Iniquity means to walk off the path. We were made for a specific path, a specific direction, but then we bend the path. Think of an emotion like anger. Anger is a very valid emotion in certain circumstances. But it begins to define us. We live in our anger. It's all that we are. We are bent and crooked towards anger. Or lust. We are made as creatures with sexual desires. But then lust is this lens that we wear that all that we can see is through this lustful image. Or pride. We live in a way in which the slightest thing destroys us and then we fight back because our pride is wounded. So iniquity is is this bentness. And David says, I'm I'm living in iniquity. I'm bent in the wrong direction. I see it. I see where my intentions have gone wrong. And then transgression, the final one, it's a willful violation of an agreement, specifically between David and God, between us and God. We could look at the Ten Commandments and say, we break these every single day in ways big and small. And the importance for bringing this up is seeing the breadth of sin. It's not just doing a wrong action. It's it's a mindset. It's a way we live. It's, It's the water we're swimming in. And so with confession, we come and see who we truly are and how we are truly living. In confession, each week we say this, we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. By what we've done, and by what we've left undone. And I mean, I want to preach a whole sermon on that one day. We have not loved with God with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We sin. We love wrongly. Our loves are in the wrong direction. And that's uncomfortable to say. But I'm sure many of us can think of those things that we've done the ways we love wrongly. And so confession and repentance, it requires us to be truthful. It requires us to be truthful to ourselves, to God, and to the people around us. In confession, we don't minimize our sins. We also don't overinflate them. In confession, we don't blame someone else. We don't blame our parents or the system. We take ownership of the mistakes and choices we make and how we live. And I just want to be honest, that's scary. It's uncomfortable, right, to really look in the mirror and say, I do these things. Those moments where, like, why did I choose to act this way? Why did I say this hurtful comment to someone? Why did I do this? But David and and the writer in John, we see this understanding. Confession is required to receive true forgiveness. And the beautiful thing that, Psalm, that David ends with in that verse 5 is, and God forgave me. Because he knows something about God. Our confession does not lead to destruction. It leads to forgiveness because he knows that God wants to forgive us. In, John, he write, in 1 John, he writes, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. David and John, they understand something vital about God. God is not a maleficent force in heaven waiting to attack us. Instead, 
He's a loving Father waiting to embrace us and forgive us. And through Jesus on the cross, we know this to be true. God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. And forgive, what does it mean? It means to absorb the debt. When you're forgiven, someone eats the humiliation, the pain, and the cost on themselves. When my friend punched Danny through the wall, my dad had the choice. He could make Chris fix it. He could make Danny pay for it. He could make us do work around the house to earn back the damage we've done. Or he could eat the cost on himself for the next 12 years as everyone asks, why is there a plant in the corner of the house? And then one day pay for that to be fixed. On the cross, what we see is the result of our sins. We see, we see where all sin leads, and it leads to separation from God. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that as the end point of our sins. We see our sins absorbed in him, and that cry is made instead of us. The cost is eaten by someone else. The cost is eaten by God himself on the cross. And then we are invited to come and confess. Because though our sins are forgiven, we need to make them open to be wiped away, you could say. Because we keep on hiding them from God, saying, no, 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 I don't need forgiveness for this. I'm going to hide this away. But to David and to John, expressing our confession to God always leads to forgiveness. It's scary. It seems like a dirty word, but it becomes beautiful. Come and confess and receive forgiveness. Come receive the blessed life. And to me, that sounds like incredibly good news. How about you? So before I end, I want to just highlight three questions that I think come up around confession. We have a, a vision of a blessed life of forgiveness that comes through confessing our sins. But I think it, it's important to ask a couple questions. First, what confession is not? In talking about confession, we can give an image for it. But I think all of us bring our own baggage when it comes to confession. So I want to say two things that confession is not. Confession is not self-pity. Confession is not a time when we come and kneel and wallow in our own sins and think, I'm such a terrible, awful person. Let me be reminded of that, that I'm so bad. That's shame. That's shame speaking. And, and Tim Keller, he actually even goes as far to say this. He says, self-pity looks like repentance, but it's self-absorption. And that's the essence of sin. So some of us, when we come to confess, if we confess in this self-pity wallowing mindset, we're not confessing. We just continue on sinning in this prideful, egocentric, wallowing way. But instead, true confession acknowledges our sin, acknowledges the place we messed up, but it instead allows God to give us a new name, a new identity through that. And the second is this, confession is not penance. We don't come and pay for our sins by crying out to God. There's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. It's already happened. All we're doing is opening ourselves up to receive it. But it's already happened. And sometimes I think what confession sounds like is a boyfriend that's been broken up with that's trying to win back his partner. Baby, don't leave me. I'll do all this sort of stuff. I'll be better. I'll try harder. I'll, I'll, I'll do all these things. 
And we can come to confession that we, we can say, God, if you forgive me, I'll do A, B, C, and D. No, you won't. There's nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness. Like, that's crazy. God made this stuff. He made the world we're living in. And when we come into confession, we act like, well, if I do all this stuff, then God will love me. But that's not what confession is. We don't come and pay for forgiveness. It's given. He forgives us and absorbs the debt on himself out of joy and celebration. And, and I think a question that may also come up is this. Why do we confess only to God? Why do we confess only to God? To which I would say we don't only confess to God. We confess first to God. Because what we need to understand about sin is sin is always first against God. We were made to reflect the image of God. We were made to live into the love that God created us for, and we don't. And so every time we sin, we first break the image we were made in. Or you can put it in the the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is have no other gods before him. In order to sin and hurt another person, I first need to put my needs, my desires, my hopes and dreams above God's and above another person's. So I'd say when we come to confession, it's meant to create a shape and form in us that can lead us to confess our sins to other people. But because God has forgiven us, there's also an easing of the weight as we go and confess our sins to other people. And that can be very tricky too, but... What I said a couple weeks ago is on on Sundays we practice our faith. On Sundays we come and we practice confession so that through the week we can go to other people and say, I have wronged you and I'm so sorry for how I hurt you. I acknowledge the ways I messed up. Please forgive me. So true confession, it starts with God, but it doesn't end there. And then I think one last question that would often come up is this. Why do we confess each week? If you grew up in a Protestant evangelical church that's not Anglican, you probably heard once saved, always saved. Once forgiven, always forgiven. You don't need to confess your faith, your sins anymore. At least that's what I always heard growing up because my parents, I loved my dad, but was very anti-Catholic growing up. So he was like, confession's a Catholic thing. Don't do it. But we're actually invited to come weekly to confess our sins. And I would say it's this. The goal of the Christian life is to live in the light. The goal of the Christian life is to live in the light. And as we go through our week and we make mistakes and we sin, I feel like darkness clings to us. One pastor I knew, they said, death and sin have died, but they've died standing up. Their effects are still felt in our life. And as we go through our week, though we are forgiven, we are invited to come live into the light. And I think each week when we come and confess, we actually enter into a moment of time travel, you could say. As we confess each week, we are brought to the foot of the cross all over again. God has forgiven us once and for all, and as we confess our sins, we're brought back to that moment. And we're reminded, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. So in confession, we don't feel sad for ourselves. We don't pay for our sins. We don't only confess to God, but we humbly come before God, knowing we are not worthy, and yet He looks on us with love. He invites us to be blessed through forgiveness and live a blessed life in response to that. So let me just close with the words of the Apostle Paul here. He says this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So St. Peter's. I don't know what your day is like, look like. I don't know what your week has looked like. I don't know what you're struggling with. But this morning, as we move to confession, I just invite this. Come into the light. Come into the light and be blessed. Let me pray. 